Hello, Grandma B here. I have to confess, I feel so inadequate after reading uh, American Marxism because I obviously have quite a language problem. I just, you have to have a special class in how to pronunciate these American words that he uses in these long detailed sentences. It's quite a tongue twister. So I'm posting this in advance uh, as an apology to my listeners because as you can hear, it's very difficult to read. So many words are kind of, I don't know them. I don't know how to pronounce them. It's like I'm reading a foreign language. And I thought my English was, and my vocabulary was extensive. I always thought that I spoke well. So anyway, um, I'm uh, posting this as somewhat of a warning in advance of my reading because, you know, I want to read it, but um, it's difficult. It's almost too complicated. Uh, But I'm reading it, and I'm hoping to read it again a second time, but but only after I take all these words that I've circled in the book and taken them down and then played them as to how do you pronounce them and practice the pronunciation of them and then the definition as well. Many, uh, you know, I kind of know what what he means by this word, but why use such a word that is so complicated? Oh my, oh my. Thank you very much. I will post this uh, as a warning in advance and Grandma B checking out and I will not give up and hopefully it will make me grow and become better. Amen. I have to pray before I read this morning. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, please help me to read softly and read with understanding. Help me to calm down as I read and help me to be understandable, Lord. Soften my words, Father God. Please come to my rescue. I don't like how I sound so angry and so sharp while I'm reading. Help me to be softer, calmer, and more understandable. And help my reading to flow. Help it to flow in an even direction. Make it as if I'm speaking to you, Lord. I know you know all about it already, but I need to make sure that I'm understandable when I read this out loud. You, Father, are the only one that can really assist me in this, and I surrender to you so that you will. Amen. So, chapter 2 goes on regarding breeding of mobs. Almost a decade ago... And before Antifa was widely known, and Black Lives Matter was established, I wrote a mass movements 
I wrote of mass movements in my book Amaryatopia. Amaryatopia. The name of the book is Amaryatopia. In the framework of utopianism. Utopianism, whether in the form of Marxism, fascism, or some other form of autocratic Satanism, is alluring to many because at their core they make glorious claims of a paradisical, paradisical, paradise that comes from paradise, paradisical future. Okay, I'll have to repeat that. Utopianism, whether in the form of Marxism, fascism, or other, some other form of autocratic satin, Satanism, is alluring to many because at their core they make glorious claims of a paradisical future, a paradisical future, and the perfectibility of man. If only the existing society and culture are radically transformed or abandoned altogether and the individual surrenders more of his liberty, free will, and security to the cause. Such is the nature of mass movements. So my personal opinion is that because people have turned their backs on God, they're desperate to find some reason for life. And they're reaching out to these kinds of possible perfectibility of man. And I certainly have some insight on that. But I will go on and continue reading. But this is exactly what I see, why it has happened. These new age movements, these people who turn their backs on gods not only first generation second and third generations people who have been completely without god and they they are looking for something but it's never god so god help them i explained further that mass movements attempt to devour the individual in two ways consume his identity and uniqueness thereby making him undistinguishable from the masses, but also assigning him a group identity based on race, age, income, etc., to draw class distinctions. This way, the demagogues and propagandists can speak to the well-being of the people as a whole while dividing them against themselves, thereby stampeding them in one direction or another as necessary to collapse the existing society or rule over the new one. And who among us is attracted to such mass movements? Again, as I noted, A receptive audience is found among the societies disenchanted, disaffected, dissatisfied, and maladjusted. 
who are unwilling and unable to assume responsibility for their own real or perceived conditions, but instead blame their surroundings, the system, and others. If I may add something to that, I think a lot of these dope addicts, these marijuana smokers, are fit into this category as well. They are lured by the false hopes and promises of utopian transformation and the criticisms of the existing society to which their connection is tentative or non-existent. Completely disconnected from real life are these people that smoke marijuana. My opinion again, just squeezed right in. Improving the malcontents lot becomes linked to the utopian cause. Moreover, disparaging and diminishing the successful and accomplished becomes an essential tactic. So, moreover, disparaging and diminishing the successful and accomplished becomes an, an essential tactic. My goodness. No one should be better than anyone else, regardless of the merits or values of his contribution. Yep, I could see where these people that are like that have taken that stance. By exploiting human frailties, frustrations, jealousies, and iniquities, a sense of meaning and self-worth is created in the malcontents, otherwise unhappy and directionless life. My goodness, that's just really the root of it, isn't it? I feel like reading that whole chapter over. Furthermore, in mass movements, the individual is inconsequential as a person and useful only as an insignificant part of an allomerary. Oh, give me that pencil so I can circle this crap. These words are for the birds. What is a good word for that? That is just not even an American word. So, furthermore, in mass movements, the individual is inconsequential as a person and useful only as an insignificant part of a group. That's what I would say. Of insignificant parts. My gosh. He's a worker. Part of a mass. Nothing more, nothing less. His existence is soulless. Absolute obedience is the highest virtue. After all, only an army of drones is capable of building a rainbow to paradise. My goodness. Almost a century ago, the French philosopher Julien Bendy observed a mass that mass movements from oh, almost a century ago, the French philosopher Julien Binda observed that mass movements form frequently around individuals who share the same political hatred. He wrote, thanks to the progress of communication 
and still more to the group spirit, it is clear that the holders of the same political hatred now form a compact, impassioned mass. Every individual of which feels himself in touch with the infinite numbers of others, whereas a century ago, such people were comparatively out of touch with each other and hatred in a scattered way. It may be asserted that these coherences will tend to develop still further. For the will, the group is one of the most profound characteristics of the modern world, which even in the most unexpected domains, for instance, the domain of thought, is more and more becoming the world of leagues, of unions and of groups. It is necessary to say that the passion of the individual is strengthened by feeling itself in proximity to these thousands of similar passions. The individual bestows a mystic personality on the association of which he feels himself a member and gives it a religious adoration, which is simply the definition of an of his own passion and no small stimulus to its intensity. Bina, Binda, who concluded that such movements are often cult-like. The coherence just described might be called surface coherence, but there is added to it a coherence of essence for the very reason that the holders of the same political passion form a more compact, impassioned group, they also form a more homogeneous, impassioned group, in which the individual ways of feeling disappear and the zeal of each member more and more takes on the color of the others. Clearly, today, clearly, Antifa movement is populated with indistinguishable soldiers dressed uniformly in black clothing and face coverings. Their identities and names are unknown. They are indoctrinated in the Marxist anarchist ideology trained in violence and said to be an idea. Obviously, it is more than an idea. It is a dangerous and brutal movement populated by angry zealots. BLM is also a Marxist anarchist movement. However, it has self-identified as a black power or black liberation movement. In when in fact its agenda extends well beyond race into the usual Marxist demands for the destruction of the existing society. Of course, these movements, like all mass movements, cannot tolerate or survive competing or rival ideas or voices. 
They demand groupthink and conformity. When we, excuse me, we have even seen this orthodoxy spread throughout our culture with the widespread firming, shaming, banning, intimidating, and otherwise abusing those who dare to voice contrary or different views or question or challenge, for example, BML's mission. So you, so, so ubiguous is the assault on individualism and unconformism in today's society that it has acquired its own modern non-culture, the cancel culture. However, this is not new, just more prevalent, open and intense. Again, I wrote nearly a decade ago that these mass movements are intolerant of diversity, uniqueness, debate, etc. For their purpose requires a singular focus. There can be no competing voices or causes slowing or obstructing society's long and righteous march. They rely on deceit, propaganda, dependence, intimidation, and force. In its more aggressive state, as the malalancy, malalancy, malalancy of the enterprise becomes more painful, its impossibility more obvious. It incites violence in as much as avenues for free expression and civil dissents, dissent are cut off. <coughs> violence becomes the individual's primary recourse and the state's primary response. Ultimately, the only way out is the state's termination. Thus, mass movements rely significantly on indoctrination and brainwashing. They are ignited and motivated by an enthusiastic intelligentsia or experts professionally engaged in developing and spreading utopian fantasies. They are immune from the impracticability of consequences of their blueprints, for they rarely present themselves for public office. Instead, they seek to influence those who do. They legislate without accountability. Where are these experts found? As we shall see primarily among tenured faculty in colleges and universities whose intellectual and emotional filthy are mostly aligned, at least in significant part, with the ideological, ideal, ideal, ideological prescriptions of Jacques, Jean-Jacques Jean Rousseau, George William Friedrich Hegel, and of course Karl Marx communists.
Russo, Hegel, and Marx, in their own ways, argue for the individual's subjection into a general will or greater good. The individual's subjugation. So in their own ways, argue for the individual surrender into general will. That's what I would say, surrender. Mark, mark, mark. I know you love those big fancy words. Or greater good. Or bigger cause built on radical... Egalitarism. This is just about as bad as reading a Bible. It's difficult. That is the collective. Of course, as logic, reason, and experience demonstrate, this is a building block to totalitarian causes. Totalitarian causes and regimes. As the state becomes increasingly authoritarian and despotic, controlling speech, mobility, and even thought were possible, it is said to perpetuate and celebrate a kind of popular or people-oriented will and liberation. Somewhat of a run-on sentence, isn't it, Mark? Of course, as logic, reason, and experience demonstrate, this is a building block for totalitarian causes and regimes. Okay? As the state becomes increasingly authoritarian and despotic, controlling speech, mobility, and even thought where possible, it is said to perpetuate and celebrate a kind of popular or people-oriented will and liberation. Oh, I see. Okay. That makes better sense. To better understand the philosophical underpinning of the Antifa and BML, the similar anti-American movements, let us take a brief look at this, these people, Rosal, Hegel, and Marx, in this context. Rosal explained, I conceive of two kinds of inequality in the human species. One that I can natural and physical, one I call natural and physical because it is established by nature and consists in the difference of age, health, bodily strength, and qualities of mind and soul. So Rousseau explained, I conceive of two kinds of inequality in the human species. One that I call natural and physical because it is established by nature and consists in the difference of age, health, bodily strength, qualities of mind and soul. The other may be called moral and political inequality for at least authorized by the consent of man, or at least authorized by the consent of man. 
The latter type is inequality consists in the different privileges enjoyed by some of the expense by some at the expense of others, such as being such as being richer, more honored, more powerful than they, or even causing themselves to be obeyed by them. Hmm. Rousseau argued further that if we follow the progress of inequality in the history of governing systems, we will find that the first stage was the establishment of the law and of the right of property. The second stage was the institution of magistracy. And the third and final stage was the transformation of legitimate power to into arbitrary power. Thus, the condition of rich and poor was authorized by the first epoch that of the strong and weak by the second. <coughs> of the master and slave by the third. The ultimate degree of inequality and the limit to which all the others finally led until new revolutions completely dissolve the government or bring it nearer to legitimate to a legitimate institution. Rousseau, I'm going to repeat that. Rousseau argued further that if we follow the progress of inequality in the history of governing systems, we will find that the first stage was the establishment of the law and of the right of property. The second stage was the institution of magistracy. And the third and final stage was the transformation of legitimate power to arbitrary power. Thus, the condition of rich and poor was authorized by the first, that of the strong and weak by the second, and that of the master and slave by the third. The ultimate degree of inequality and the limit to which all the others finally led until new revolutions completely dissolve the government and bring it nearer to a legitimate institution. How will we know when the legitimate institution has been achieved beyond the construct? Rosada does not tell us. For Hegel, the other expert, so to speak, the individual finds his actualization, liberty, happiness, fulfillment, through the state, but not just any state. States evolve over time, ultimately leading to a fully developed state or the final end. In such a state, the individual becomes part of a universalized collective whole. The, that which preceded the final end is of no consequence. Again, the individual is 
subservient to the state for both his own realization and the greater good of the collective. At this point, the state as a completed reality is the ethical whole and the actualization of freedom. It is the absolute purpose of reason that freedom should be actualized. A state is the spirit which abides in the world and there realizes itself consciously. Only when it is present in consciousness, knowing itself as an existing object, is it a state. In thinking of freedom, we must not take our departure from individuality or the individual self-consciousness, but from the essence of self-consciousness. Let man be aware of it or not. This essence realizes itself as an independent power in which particular persons are only phases. The state is the march of God in the world. Its ground or cause is the power of reason realizing itself as well. Goodness, that guy is a maniac. How do we know when we have reached the final end beyond the theoretical construct? Hegel does not tell us. Hegel does not tell us. Well, Rousseau does not tell us. Marx, with his emphasis on historic materialism, wrote, the modern society that has sprouted from the ruins of feudal society has not done away with class antagonisms. Society as a whole is more and more splitting up into two great hostile camps, into two great classes directly facing each other. The capitalists the owners of property and the means of production and the laborer, the industrial working class. Marx argues that not only are the slaves of the first class and the state of the first class, they are daily and hourly enslaved by the machine, by the overseer, and above all, the individual manufacturer himself. Constantly the state is at a dead end, unless of course he adopts the revolution prescribed by Marx. It is the only way out. God. If this state is to eliminate economic classes and transform society into an equalitarian paradise, 
He must wipe clean the present from the past. First, by overthrowing the existent regime and smashing capitalism, placing them with a centralized state. And once society and the culture are cleansed of the past, the state will wither away. And what follows is a amorphous utopian state. God. Powered by the people through the collective. As Marx declares, of course, in the beginning this cannot be effected except by means of dysphoric inroads on the rights of property and on the conditions of the by the means of measures, therefore, which appear economically insufficient and untendable, but which in the course of the movement outstrip themselves, necessitate further inroads upon the old social order and are unavoidable as a means of entirely revolutionizing the revolutionizing the mode of production. Again, Marx insists that the individual's realization and salvation are discovered through his identity with the proletarian revolution. And then the perfected existence under the people's collective will which somehow and some way develops from a police state that precedes the withering away of the states altogether. How do we know when we have reached the worker's paradise beyond the theoretical construct? Marx does not tell us. My God, so they're following three idiots. The impartiality instead of God the impartiality and, in fact, impossibility, impracta, impractability, and, in fact, impossibility of these ideologies appear to be strangely alluring to those who crusade for them. How can they understand that crap? I couldn't even read it to make you understand it. It's hogwash. So, the impracticability and, in fact, impossibilities of these ideologies appear to be strangely alluring to those who crusade for them. Moreover, the paradise each promises, once the revolution succeeds in dissolving the status quo, an existing state fails to move beyond the point of a centralized police state in which the individual is indeed expendable and the masses are compelled to serve the purpose of the party or individuals in charge of that state. Examples of such states include China, North Korea, Venezuela, and Cuba, etc. There are others as well. Seventy years ago, Eric Hoffer wrote an ironic 
iconic, an iconic book. The True Believer. On the nature of mass movements, Hoffer explained that mass movements are built of deeply flawed individuals with deeply flawed ideas. He noted that mass movement attracts and holds a following not because it can satisfy the desire of self-advancement, but because it can satisfy the passion for self-reunification. People who see their lives as irremediately spoiled cannot find a worthwhile purpose in self-advancement. They look on self-interest as something tainted and evil, something unclean and unlucky, anything undertaken under the auspices of the self seems to be, seems to them foredoomed. Anything undertaken under the auspices of self seems to them foredoomed. Nothing that has its roots and reason in self can be good or noble, good and noble. Moreover, most mass movements are angry and gloomy movements, hostile toward well-adjusted, happy, and successful individuals. Again, this is evident in the Antifa and BLM movements, among others. Hoffa observed that not only does a mass movement depict the present as means, as a mean and miserable, Hoffman observed that not only does a mass movement depict the present as mean and miserable, it deliberately makes it so. It fashions a pattern of individual existence that is dour, hard, repressive, and dull. It decries pleasures and comforts and extols the righteous life, the rigorous life, extols the rigorous life. It views ordinary enjoyment as trivial or even discreditable, discreditable, and represents the pursuit of personal happiness as immoral. The prime objective of this ideal preached by most movements is to breed contempt for the present. Indeed, there is a kind of psychotic pleasure and excitement in wrecking the present-day society, including, if not especially, one as free, humane, tolerant, and virtuous as ours. Well, psychotic, we all know psychotic. Marijuana brings on psychotic episodes, and all those marijuana smokers, I'm sure, are part of this crap. And that's part of their whole movements, is they, they're in a psychotic state. And I can give a definition of psychotic later. I will certainly do it. What surprises one 
when listening to the frustrated as they decry the present in all its works, wrote Hoffer, is the enormous joy they derive from doing so. Evil. Such delight cannot come from the mere venting of a grievance. By expirating upon the incurable baseness and vileness of the times, the frustrated soften their feeling of failure and isolation. Thus, by the deprecating the present, they acquire a vague sense of equality. The cause itself becomes the reason for one's existence. As Hoffer pointed out, the means of mass movement uses to make the present unpalatable strike a responsive chord in the frustrated. The self-mastery needed in overcoming their appetite gives them an illusion of strength. They feel that the mastering themselves, they feel that in mastering themselves, they have mastered the world. One gains the impression that the frustrated derive as much satisfaction, if not more, from the means a mass movement uses as from the end it advocates. This also explains why the end of such revolutions is never in sight. Even when the revolutionaries have seized power, the revolution perseveres, for the cause has no end as it is ultimately unachievable as man and society are not perfectible. But the true believer's appetite for revolution is insatiable. Nonetheless, as Hoffer points out, the Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx advocated, non nonetheless, as Hoffer points out, and as Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx advocated, the radical has a passionate faith in the infinite perfectibility of human nature. <coughs> he believes that by changing a man's environment and by perfecting a technique of soul forming, a society can be wrought that is wholly new and unprecedented. And of course, brainwashing and idolatry to the cause are the lifeblood of mass movements. For example, when presented with statistical evidence that law enforcement is not systematically racist, it is the true believer's ability to shut his eyes and stop his ears to facts that do not deserve to be either seen or heard, which is the source of the unequaled fortitude and constancy. He cannot be frightened by danger or disheartened by obstacles nor baffled by contradictions because he denies their existence. 
And it is the certitude and infallible doctrine that renders the true believer imperious to the uncertainties. Surprises and the unpleasant realities of the world around him. It is obvious that in order to be effective, a doctrine must not be understood, but has rather, but has rather to be believed in. The devout are always urged to seek the absolute truth with their hearts and not their minds. Thus, Hoffer is describing a fanatic and fanaticism. The fanatic's passionate attachment is the essence of the blind devotion and religiosity, and he sees in it the source of all virtue and strength. Though his single-minded dedication is a holding on for dear life. He easily sees himself as the supporter and defender of the holy cause to which he clings. When a fanatic is confronted with facts, statistics, history, experience, ethics, faith, or what have you, it is of no consequence. He has found his calling, and he will not be dissuaded from it. Again, the cause is greater than all things. Hoffer explains it this way. The fanatic cannot be weaned away from his cause by an appeal to his reason or moral sense. He fears compromise and cannot be persuaded to equality. He cannot be persuaded to qualify the certitude and righteousness of his holy cause. His passionate attachment is more vital than the quality of the cause to which he is attached. He continues to live without an ardent dedication is to be adrift and abandoned. To live without an ardent dedication is to be adrift and abandoned. He sees an intolerant uh, he sees intolerance a sign of weakness frivol frivolot frivolity and ignorance. He hungers for a deep assurance which comes with total surrender the wholehearted clinging to a creed and cause. What matters is not the contents of the cause, but the total dedication of the communion with the congregation. The fanatic comes from all walks of life and all backgrounds. For example, multi-billionaire George Soros pours enormous sums of money into radical causes and groups. Professional athletes such as Colin Kaepernick and LeBron James are huge.
huge supporters and disparagers of American society. They hate American society. Many college and university professors are purveyors and revisionists. American history and radical anti-American ideologies College and university students from middle class and wealthy families are increasingly militant opponents of the civil society. And of course, various communities are ever more radicalized by radical economic, educational, and other distinctions and disparities. Like Benda, Hoffer sees the fanatic and the mass movement as centered on an intense, if not obsessive, hatred. Passionate hatred can give meaning and purpose to an empty life, explains Hoffer. Thus people haunted, haunted by the purposelessness of their lives, try to find a new content, not only by dedicating themselves to a holy cause, but also by nursing a fanatical grievance. A mass movement offers them unlimited opportunities for both. Indeed, the dangerousness of this hatred will, when tied to a cause, can have calamitous societal and human consequences. It leads to scapegoating, balkanization, violence, and in its aggressive form, ethnic cleansing. More broadly and simultaneously, this hatred seeks to malign, debase, debauch, and ultimately topple the status quo of the civil society. For example, the American founding, the 1619 Project, which is addressed in Chapter 4, the Constitution, capitalism, and law enforcement, etc. They want to topple that because they have this hatred, my goodness. Hoffer described the model by which the groundwork is set for the rise of mass movements. Number one, by discrediting prevailing creeds and institutions and detaching from them the alliance of the people. Number two, by indirectly creating a hunger for faith in the hearts of those who cannot live without it. So that when the new faith is preached, it finds an eager response among the disillusioned masses. Number three, by furnishing the doctrine and slogans of a new faith. Number four, by undermining the convictions of the better people, those who can get along without faith so that when the new fanaticism makes its appearance, they are without the capacity to resist it. In the end, if such mass movements succeed, the result is totalitarianism. Hannah Hedra Arendt 
in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, Totalitarianism, argued these mass movements are the foundation for violence and deposition, depotism. The attraction of evil and crime for the mob mentality is nothing new. It has always been true that the mob will greet deeds of violence with an admiring remark. It may be mean, but it is very clever. The disturbing factor in the success of totalitarianism is rather the true selflessness of its adherents. In point of fact, mass movements are the necessary precursors to building revolutions and overthrowing governments. In the immediate instance, our own republic, by various and competing tactical approaches. But as described earlier, there is a commonality, an essential methodology to the counter-revolution in societal transformation, social transformation. The promotion of the collective into which all revolutionaries or social activists are to be absorbed. Jeez. Unbeknownst to most, this subject loosely called social movement theory among academics is widely analyzed, debated, thought, and promoted by the professor yet professor yet throughout the nation's colleges and universities moreover revolution and mass movements are frequently romanticized and glamorized as righteous and irreproachable responses to an oppressive inequitable, unjust, racial, and immoral society. Oh, goodness. Tongue twisters is what I call it. Of course, this matters greatly because of the effect that education on the college campus and communication through formal textbooks and scholarly essays, which too often take the form of indoctrination and brainwashing have on the ideas that saturate and engulf not just students but the culture and society and manifest themselves in America's streets, corporate boardrooms, politics, and newsrooms. Boy, that is one long sentence, isn't it? Hence, it is necessary to briefly examine examples of this process. The word he uses I have never seen before. So Mark, yes, that, that is some, some very fancy writing. Hardly, a layman can hardly read it. 
I must call you and tell you that your language is very difficult to understand. You embellish it way too much. I guess if you were to be a straight talker, all of this book would be a lot thinner. And it may not get the attention that it has because reading it is very difficult because of all the different embellishments. Embellishments from words that we've never heard. So I will continue on. Frontiers in Social Movements, Movement Theology, 1992, is a compilation of such essays authored by numerous social activist scholars, most of whom are professors. Well, I can tell you're highly educated. You must have had a special class on words that the layman doesn't know. I thought I spoke pretty good English, and I thought I could read just about anything, but my goodness, reading your book is very difficult. As, as will become apparent, these scholars have essentially built their arguments and propositions for social activism and even revolution on the fundamental ideological writings of Rousseau, Hegel, and Marx, and mostly follow the characteristics and formula of mass movements described by Bina, Hoffer, and me. Okay, okay. Well, I hope you can summarize it in, in some layman's terms. But uh, I guess you're really trying to get to the intellectuals, aren't you, with this book? The book's preface sums up the overarching premise. We hope this volume illuminates some fundamental issues regarding an important topic. For as Louis Kozer, prominent socialist, sociologist, and social conflict advocate reminded us, social movements are institutionalities to abolish or at least weaken structures of political and social domination. He also made the point that many people who participate in social movements do so at great sacrifice because they draw their sustenance from the enhancement of present satisfaction, but from long-term perspective sustained by the firm belief in the coming of a society embodying justice and democratic equality instead of the here and now of exploitation and denial of human dignity. Oh, I'm exhausted reading this stuff. Exhausted. I guess I need to go to children's books. One of the essayists, essayists, Professor William Gamson of Boston College, emphasizes, much like Rousseau, the significance of the collective identity. He writes in part that participation in social movements frequently involves an enlargement of personal identity for participants and offers fulfillment and realization of self. 
participation in civil rights movement, women's movement, the new left, for example, has frequently a transformative experience central to the self-definition of many participants in their later lives. The construction of the collective identity is the most central task of new social movements. Group identity is necessary and critical to the success of the movement. When people bind their fate to the fate of a group, argues Gamson, they feel personally threatened when the group is threatened. So solidarity and collective identity operate to blur the distinction between individual and group interest, undermining the premises on which such utilitarian models operate. Gamson insists that for a movement to effectively mobilize, it must be viewed and in fact must become the identity through which the individual views himself. Collective identity is a concept at the cultural level, but to operate in mobilization, individuals must make it part of their personal identity. Solidarity centers on the ways in which individuals commit themselves and the resources they control to some kind of collective actor, an organization or advocacy network. Adopting, and co adopting a collective action frame involves incorporating a product of the cultural system particular shared understanding of the world into the political consciousness of individuals, individual and soci so socio-cultural levels are linked through the mobilizing acts in face-to-face -face encounters. Assistant Professor Deborah Friedman and Professor Doug McMahon, McAdam, then of the University of Arizona bluntly declare, the collective identity of social movement organization is a shorthand designation announcing a status, a set of attitudes, commitments, and rules of behavior that those who assume the identity Good morning, Grandma B here. Yes, I'm listening to my previous podcast, and my goodness, this uh, book is very hard to read out loud. I might have to read it several times before I can make myself clearly understood while reading, or maybe even better yet, uh, I could communicate my information or the information that I've gleaned from the book in my own words so that they could be understood. Uh, some people write in a fashion that is just way above my um, grade, my ability to understand and reiterate. When I say reiterate, that means repeat, repeat. It's difficult to repeat and read and uh, know exactly where to stop in a sentence. 
And then when you come up on a word that you don't know, my goodness, that could stop you in your tracks and completely derail someone like me. I think that I'm fairly um, knowledgeable and have the ability to communicate. And I also feel like I have the um, capacity to uh, explain situations in layman's terms. I don't need to use fancy words that are way beyond some people's vocabulary in order to make myself credible. So here I am, and yes, I'm ready to go forward and read some more. And like I said earlier, I may have to read it several times before I become proficient and understandable. It's not like uh, books that I get on tape that are read by a professional that they probably read it more than once as well just to be able to um, be prepared about what's coming up in a sentence or in a chapter, picking out words that you're not familiar with ahead of time would be a good idea, but who has time for that? Somebody with such a busy agenda like mine. So my friend was here and she said, my goodness, your house is very active. And I gotta say, yes, I agree with her. My home, our home is active. We have a lot of pets. We have a lot of things going on and Active is sometimes nice, but believe me, we just sit back and do nothing on occasions, and especially on Shabbat. So we're extremely thankful for the Shabbat, because that's the day when we shut everything down and get with God. So I was watching Sky News, and that's the news from uh, the UK And they seem to cover things even a little bit better than our mainstream media does. And uh, saw about the floods in Europe. And immediately they point the finger at climate change, climate change. And then there's a flood in China. Oh, it's climate change. It's never blamed on infrastructure or failure to upgrade the system that they have. Failure to drench those rivers over there in Europe. You know, they're used to torrential rains there. But if they their uh, infrastructure has definitely changed over the years, their homes have changed, and I can clearly see that in the video clips that they produced on Sky News. You know, their mansions over there are massive, and they drive automobiles that are massive. And all this is going on on those little tiny streets that have been there for centuries. Some of them still cobblestone. But all their rivers and their infrastructure as far as, uh, uh, as, far as um, sewage is not upgraded on a regular basis as far as I can see. And uh, they've had all those people migrate to... <laughs> in from other countries 
So um, a lot of their issues over there could very well be blamed on infrastructure, failure to upgrade their infrastructure, failure to drench those rivers. By drenching them, I mean they have to go in there and dig down to make them deeper because time will make them, will make the derbis and the stuff, uh, the debris, I should say, the debris and stuff settle on the bottom. Hence, the river is not as deep as it once was. So I never hear anything about them going in and deepening these canals. These rivers are actually canals over there. They're not really rivers because there's nothing natural about them. To the best of my knowledge, there isn't hardly any place where the rivers are not fortified with concrete on each side and kept uh, in a kept in a fortified situation they're kept the river is kept like for instance our river here i was always quite impressed by how our river doesn't have any sides to it no walls holding it in because we can't control what happens the rain or the, the runoff from mountains. We can't control that. We never know how much we will get from one year to the next. And if you look back, if you're truly a scientist, you will look back and you will see that we've had rains, rains, rains before, and floods, floods, floods. We've even had Mount St. Helens, which exploded in 1980. Was that climate change too? Oh, that's probably what started the whole ordeal with with our climate czar, Carrie, who is a complete fake, a complete phony, a complete liar. So uh, anyway, that's my ranting. My grand, uh, this grandma has the right to rant, and that's exactly what I will do is rant, rant and, rant and bitch about it. Okay, here's the baby. He's growing like a beautiful flower. Here you go, little ones. Come and get your bone. Get your bone. There you go. Come lay down over here on your towel. Come on. So, yeah, the uh, the rivers have not been accommodated. They have not done anything to accommodate any kind of uh, change in the... Um, I guess you could call it climate change, but it's it's always been happening. We have changes in the climate. It's a normal thing. It's nothing to get alarmed about and scare people like it's the end of the world. We've had climate change every year, and it's not that kind of climate change. What we've had is uh, we may get a lot of rain one year and no rain the next year. So that doesn't mean we'll not get any rain for the next five years. We may, the rain may change at any time it wants to. And you know why? Because we're not in control of that. Even though in Dubai, they're creating rain by cloud seeding or whatever scientific method they located or conjured up. So they're creating their own rain over there in Dubai where it's never rained or hardly ever rains, all of a sudden now it rains over there because they're doing cloud seeding. So possibly the cloud seeding just kind of blew over to the other side of the world and hit China and then Germany or vice versa. 
and that extra cloud seeding from Dubai, because, you know, they're not regulated. They do whatever they want over there in Dubai. So, <laughs> so some of that great cloud seeding they did could very well have floated over into Germany and created this massive downpour for, what, 48 hours? And then their little rivers, which are all in, they're all kept in by walls, overflowed. When a river is kept in by walls, what do you expect? It's gonna overflow if there's too much water. And it's just not moving fast enough because you got so much slime that's built up on the sides and no one has gone in there and made the river deeper to accommodate for anything. So it's unfortunate that people had to die, but I think Angela Merkel should be held responsible for failing to upgrade the infrastructure to accommodate rain failing to uh, mention that, hey, Dubai, at the same time as this massive rain was cloud seeding, doing something to their climate so it would rain more. And yes, it rained like hell in Dubai where it never rains. <laughs> oh, So I will get to the book and I'm going to do it on my bicycle. And hopefully we'll go to the boat this morning and do a training session with the pups. Everything is good over here. I just had to do my regular chores. I make my bed every morning. And I put the wonderful bedspread that I just uh, sewed out of a durable material on it. And it helps my day go well because by the time we go to bed, it's wonderful to go into a bed that's been made. Who wants to go into an unmade bed? Nobody I know. I like my bed made army style, which means very neat and very tight. The sheets are tight, everything is perfect. That's the way I like my bed to be. Even though I let my dogs on the bed, it has to be clean protected from mud or dirt and here he is looking all good thank you i will continue here in a little bit with my book